on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, some ideas for a lunchtime menu, including sea urchin. We've just in the last few months finished our export facility that can deal with 400 tonne plus a year. I don't think in Australia people can appreciate how much it's revered and is truly appreciated overseas as a real delicacy. Or this one, which is an old favourite. And I made the pineapple fritters and cheese, ham and pineapple fritters. Um, They're a savoury dish made with your pineapple, cinnamon sugar and coconut in the batter and fried up. And you can make them easily at home. Getting hungry, are you? I am. Sounds a great one for lunch, doesn't it? Some more pineapple recipes coming up. And the processor who can't get enough sea urchins to meet the strong demand. G'day, Tony, with you on this Friday, where we also have a close look at how the planned changes to superannuation might affect the farm sector. And the big issue of attracting staff. When you manage to get good staff, how do you keep them on farm? We'll talk about that later in the program. Plus, Richard Bailey will have the details of the latest wiener sale at Power Renner. We'll check the weather and we'll take your thoughts on any issues via the text line. 0438922936 might have a pineapple recipe for us. 0438922936 is that number. First up today, Tasmanian biosecurity officers are now checking beehives in a containment area in the northwest following the discovery of a hive beetle in a guard hive at the port of Devonport. A 15-kilometre exclusion zone has been set up so no hives or materials can be moved into or out of the area for the time being. Tasmania's Chief Plant Protection Officer, Andrew Bishop, says checking all hives in the area is the top priority right now. We detected in one of our... uh uh, guard hives, we detected a, a single small hive beetle. Remind me what a guard hive is. Okay, across Tasmania we have a range of hives, usually in port areas, which are set up, uh, they're like sentinels, they're set up to detect uh, the early presence of a bee pest uh, or disease that may be coming in. Uh, so this is one of uh, our guard hives, which belongs to, to Biosecurity Tasmania, and we, we monitor these regularly to see if there are any uh, bee pests of concerns being picked up. The beekeeping industry is quite alarmed by this find. Yeah, look, uh, small hive beetle uh, is present in other parts of Australia except Northern Territory and except Tasmania, so it's certainly a, uh, a bee pest of concern for us, uh, hence, you know, hence our uh, reaction to it. So you only fi- found one beetle, but it was found mm. in a hive. It was found, yes, it was found in the trap in, in one of the guard hives. So that's a, that's a single beetle. So I just, I just want to stress this, is, this doesn't indicate that, you know, we have small hive beetle in our apiaries, but the fact that we detected that there initiates a series of precautionary actions just to determine that we don't. What do those precautionary rules and things that you've put in place, what are they? Mm. Okay, so what we've done is uh, declare a uh, via a general biosecurity order under the Biosecurity Act, uh, a bee movement restriction area within 15 kilometre radius uh, of, of that detection. So what that does basically is put limitations or restrictions on being able to, to move hives uh, within that area or, or out of that area. The reason being that we need to take a look at all of those hives that, that may be present there and determine if a small hive beetle is present or not. Do you know if there's many hives in that area? 
we're gathering that information that there will be a reasonable number but yeah we'll, we'll have to you know s- survey each of those interesting it was one beetle found in a hive and yep. yet we've had sort of a ban on any bead products or any used equipment coming in for a few months now because of varroa mite yep. makes you wonder how it got there yeah look that's a key thing in terms of you know trying to determine its origin is a Certainly, a key activity that uh, you know that we we will obviously be investigating. Uh, from my point of view, the you know the primary uh, activity at this point in time, though, is to determine if it is present elsewhere. And is this a notifiable pest? Is it that serious in Tasmania? Yes, it's a, look. It's a declared pest under the under the Biosecurity Act. So yes, it it is. It's a it's you know it's classed as a, a quarantine pest. Do you have any ideas, or can you surmise that that things like the wetter weather, La Nina, for example, might have encouraged this beetle to get here? Look, I, 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 yeah, that would be sort of all speculation. There could be a whole range of, of matters there. I should say that does remind me in terms of its preferred climate. It tends to prefer warmer, moister climates in coastal areas. You know, so it, it does very well sort of more up the north of Australia. So one advantage we do have, not only, you know, only being a single beetle, obviously, that we've found is that uh, the, you know, the Tasmanian climate isn't conducive for it, which is, which is a positive. Is there a chance someone could have brought Broken the rules and brought some bees in from interstate. Oh look, I, I, I can't. I, honestly, I can't speculate on that. Uh, as I say, we, we'll, we'll do some investigations uh, on on this particular find and just see if we can find you know anything in relation, to, say, a trace back. Is there a chance it could have come in on fruit or rotten fruit? Look, it can. It can move on fruit. Uh, it's fairly unusual, but it but it can. So as I say, there's a whole range. You know, if there's there's some really good information on our website, uh, which takes links to, you know, more information on small hive beetles. People are interested. It's worth looking at that. But so, you know, there's a number of avenues. Uh, so those are the sort of things that, you know, that we'll look at and try to determine. But but as I say, I want to emphasise that our, our primary focus is on the uh, on that surveillance and that determining, you know, what's within that 15-kilometre area. And hopefully there isn't any high, small hive beetle. And just on varroa mite, obviously no signs that it's making its way south to Tasmania at all. In relation to varroa, no. And we've had a, we've had a, a, a detailed surveillance program in relation to varroa in response to the uh, incursions within New South Wales. And no, we're clear of, of that. So, and I also want to emphasise that this is you know, this is a different a different bee pest. It's not varroa. Yeah, it's a different bee pest. Tasmania's Chief Plant Protection Officer, Andrew Bishop, talking there to Fiona Breen about the discovery of the small hive beetle at the port of Devonport, and biosecurity officers are checking beehives in the 15-kilometre exclusion zone around the port. Biosecurity Tasmania says all commercial and recreational beekeepers that registration of hives is now compulsory. Uh, registration allows Biosecurity Tasmania to readily trace and contact beekeepers in any area in the event of an incursion and beekeepers have until 31th or 31st of March to register their beekeeping activities and penalties may apply for failing to register before this date if you commercially or recreational keep bees. Biosecurity Tasmania's website is the place to go for more information on that. Well, a large number of farmers may get caught up in the proposed changes to the superannuation system. The federal government wants to double the tax on capital gains on people with assets greater than $3 million in a super fund. Charlie Thomas from the National Farmers Federation explains to David Clawton how the proposal will work. 
a lot of Australians will hear $3 million in a super account and think that that is a very small percentage of the population, but it is actually a much higher percentage of the farming community. And the way it affects farmers is a couple of ways. So I guess firstly, why farmers have these assets in their super fund in the first place. For a lot of farmers, their, their land asset is their superannuation. So they don't make superannuation contributions in the same way that paid employees like you and I might do. Um, and so relying on that asset in their retirement is pretty typical for a lot of farming families. And they transfer it into superannuation because a lot of the time it's relating to succession planning arrangements. So they might put the, the land assets into superannuation and then the next generation might pay a lease payment back to the farmer and that effectively becomes their retirement income. So what this additional tax is proposing is that if you've got assets exceeding $3 million in your superannuation, there'll now be an additional tax of 15% on any income um, on those assets exceeding $3 million. So the, the key concern that we have is around what's called unrealised gains and the fact that they're going to be taxed really for the first time. It's something that's quite unusual within our broader taxation system. And so if you've got a, a farm in your superannuation that's worth, say, $4 million, um, which isn't atypical for, for a lot of farms in this day and age. And then over the course of 12 months, that might see an increase of 8% up to, say, $4.3 million. So you're going to be taxed on that increase um, of $300,000 at 15% annually. And so... At 15 or 30%? Because they were increasing the, the tax, weren't they? Well, that's correct. So it's 15% now. They're going to add an additional 15% for for accounts over the $3 million mark. Yep. So so that new tax is 15%. Um, and so that could be, say, that $300,000 increase that I'm hypothetically talking about there, that could be an additional tax bill of around 50 grand. And if you think about the return on assets for a lot of farming businesses, it's often around 2%. So you might only be making... $90,000 in terms of a return, um, you know, after all your costs, and then more than half of that could be consumed just by this new tax. So it is, you and know... that's every year, potentially, if property values continue to rise. Every year, that's exactly right. And, and you know, we've all seen what's happened with valuations of rural properties. There has been a real surge in the market, and it's become quite disconnected from what the, uh, the, the assets are actually returning in terms of... Um, you know, money back in the farmer's pocket. And what if so, the property value goes down the next year? Do they get the money back? Well, David, this is one of the many, many details that we're still yet to work through with government. And it's one of our primary frustrations that there hasn't been a proper consultation process to sit down with groups like ours and talk through this because that's exactly right. Do you get to accumulate those losses? Does it come off the tax bill in the following year? It's really not clear in anything that the government's put out so far. Could you see some farmers being forced to sell if they couldn't cough up, say, the 50 grand we were just speculating on? Well, that's right. Exactly. So the only option that you would have is, if you haven't got available cash to meet that tax bill, is to sell off those assets within the fund. So that's, um, that's extremely concerning because, you know, this is such a, a significant number of family farming businesses who are in this category right now. We've got a lot, an ageing population um, among the farming community and a lot of people with current succession plans in place that involve these sort of arrangements. And these succession plans, they take, in many cases, you know, a decade to, to get into, into place through the negotiation process and then actually setting things up and structuring things legally. 
and to unpick that, so this isn't meant to come into place until 2025, but that only leaves farming businesses with two years to unpick that if we're looking at this as a reality and having to potentially change up um, how things are structured. So there's 130 or 40,000 farmers in Australia, supposedly, but with, so would there be tens of thousands of people that might fall into this category? It's very hard to get good data on that. We are trying to sort of work on some estimations based on feedback from local accountants and the like, but there is no publicly available data that allows us to examine exactly how many people would be affected. But anecdotally, just talking to our members, you know, everyone, if they don't have this arrangement in place, they certainly have a neighbour that does. And so, yeah, it, it, we would expect it to be a significant proportion of the, of the farming community. So what are you hoping will happen next? Well, we're hoping that, you know, we may not be able to negotiate a complete reversal of the policy, but things like those unrealised gains, I think if we can stick to the principle that we only pay capital gains tax on assets when they're realised, that um, that would be a big step forward. Things like indexation, um, if we could just get the, the cap to stay in line with market values for assets that people are going to be holding in their funds, um, those would be two important steps forward. But of course, you know, it still does come back to the fact that they're proposing to increase taxes on on superannuation and, and farmers' retirement savings. And that's something that I think even in itself needs some careful consideration of. And the reason for that is because farmers' assets that they hold in superannuation are never intended to be realised. They're intended, in most cases, to be passed on to the next generation. So it's not as though, um, you know, they've been saving for their retirement, have built up a balance of $3 million and then they're they're then going to draw down on that over the course of their retirement. The intention is not to draw down. The intention is to hand that asset on. And that's an important fundamental if we're to continue having a strong presence of family farming in this country. That's Charlie Thomas from the National Farmers Federation speaking there to David Clawton about how the superannuation changes would affect the farm sector. Coming up on the Country Hour, an urchin processor expanding operations. Mornings with Leon Compton. Next week on Mornings, listen in or come say day as we broadcast to you from the Claremont Men's Shed in Hobart's northern suburbs. We'll focus on the power of community connection in places like the Men's Shed and we'll talk about how the cost of living is starting to bite. And of course, we'll talk to you. Come say day or listen in from 8.30 Tuesday next week at the Claremont Men's Shed. Leon Compton, ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And on that previous story, Len from Bernie says farmers get tax deductions for everything they do. They should pay their fair share of tax. Thank you for that, Len. 0438922936 is that text line number. Around 3,600 winners were up for sale yesterday at Powerana. We'll talk to Richard Bailey a little bit later in the program to uh, find out exactly what happened. Well, the Senate inquiry into the problem of the long-spined invasive sea urchin continues. And with policies like subsidies for urchin divers, eating the problem has proven to be one strategy that's working. A report last year predicted that without divers helping out, the density of the troublesome urchins would be near double in some areas. So what about the role of urchin processors who make these weird black spiny things appetising? Madeleine Rajan spoke to the General Manager of Mainland Australia's biggest urchin processor, Rachel Theodore, to hear how they do it. 
I married into a fishing family, an abalone fishing family. <laughs> um, so they have shareholdings in New South Wales and Victoria. And Chris's family started to see that the sea urchin was starting to decimate their investment. And um, me and Chris could see an opening there to create a business, but at the same time uh, help the reef. How has the um, reaction been? Has there been um, a lot of demand for the product? Yeah, definitely. We've seen huge growth in the small 13 years that we've operated. Uh, when we first started, people were dabbling in processing, um, in Australia that is, and um, prices were really low and, you know, there wasn't much demand. But as we, over the years, worked really hard with wholesalers and restaurants and um, just investing heavily in marketing and PR, um, demand quite quickly grew and um, people come to appreciate um, it for a premium seafood that it is, just like overseas where it is already a well-established industry. Yeah, because I think for, for a lot of people it's quite a new and quirky looking thing, but how have you managed to make it marketable? What kinds of products have you been selling? Uh, so in Australia we just do a few products because uh, obviously we're at the very infant stage of processing and infant stage of the industry, but uh, our most premium product is for the Asian market, which is a uni tray. It's very popular in sashimi restaurants and um, like your sushi trains or high-end restaurants. Um, and then there's different grades of that uni tray. Uh, then there's uh, a kina product that the Maoris just love. And then you can do frozen as well. What role can processors like yourself have in this? Our processors play a huge role in uh, combating the huge populations of the Centro Longspine Sea Urchin. Uh, we're the ones that are buying them all and creating the demand you know, for the divers to go get them. So uh, our role's huge in that. Um, we also have so much knowledge because we speak to our divers like three times a day. You know, we know where the urchins are, we know where the barons are. Yeah, uh, we're very important. <laughs> what, what are your plans for the future as a processor? Um, are there any challenges you're facing at the moment in, in terms of marketing the urchin and, and or keeping up with the demand or those sorts of things? So our future is we've just in the last few months finished our export facility that can deal with 400 tonne plus a year capacity. The facility we've built it in has another two thirds more space so we plan to 100% to diversify so do products with longer shelf um, different markets, different countries like to eat it a different way. Um, different grades can be dealt with differently. So that's definitely what we see for the future. And so is demand rising then? The demand for sea urchin is literally insatiable. <laughs> like, I don't think in Australia people can appreciate how much it's revered and is truly appreciated overseas as a real delicacy. Love that description. It's virtually insatiable. Uh. A lot of people love sea urchin. There you go, New South Wales sea urchin processor. Rachel Theodore talking to Madeline Rojan about the popularity of eating urchins and their role in the broader strategy of the invasive species removal, which we know there's a lot of them off the east coast of Tasmania. And what a great solution to eat them.
Well, the Assistant Minister for Trade and Manufacturing has addressed delegates at the ABARES conference in Canberra this week. Senator Tim Ayres spoke to the media, including our own Alice Marshall, covering a range of issues from trade to transport and live export of sheep. Well, well, Murray, what the Ag Minister and Don Farrell, the Minister for Trade, have been making the case for Australian agriculture. We have uh, very strong sustainability uh, standards and a highly efficient, unsubsidised, you know, lowest subsidies in the world agricultural production methods. Um, it is, it is uh, vital that we continue to make the case for Australian agriculture and that the shape of, uh, of uh, future global arrangements or regional arrangements around uh, sustainability issues reflect the Australian interest. But how do you do that when there aren't global, um, always uniformity in terms of global standards? Well, by continuing to be uh, effective and tough negotiators, by continuing to assert the national interest and finding common cause uh, with, uh, with other countries around the world. You know, there is uh, more than $820 billion worth of agricultural subsidies around the world today. They are distortionary in market terms. They displace uh, production, but they're also corrosive for global food security and emissions efforts. Lower uh, efficiency production that is subsidised um, is damaging in the terms, in, in sustainability terms, and Australia will continue to make that case. Uh, we'll make that case strongly in the lead-up to the next WTO ministerial round too. Minister, you spoke earlier about needing to increase our market diversification when it comes to both trade outside and domestic trade, and a key part of that that you spoke about was the need to diversify our transport sector. In the wake of Scott Transport collapsing earlier this week, how do you see the government supporting our transport industry? Well, well the point I made today was about making sure that we diversify Australia's product offering to the world, and that means reindustrialising the Australian economy. The National Reconstruction Fund is directed squarely towards uh, lifting Australia's capability in agriculture and fibre uh, and mining technology manufacturing, uh, an ambition to reindustrialise Australia's regions. I don't understand why Peter Dutton and David Littleproud are opposed to the biggest industry policy offering in Australia's peacetime history that will serve to reindustrialise and provide good jobs uh, in our regions and outer suburbs. Uh, in transport infrastructure terms, uh, we're watching this, uh, this uh, corporate collapse closely. Uh, it, is, it is vital that, uh, that, that trade and logistics um, works effectively for Australian agriculture. We had the Super Exports panel started um, on Friday. Yeah. Uh, I guess it was, um, you know, the first real action in terms of um, what's what's happening in that sphere. Um, how damaging is it going to be to Australia's trade, um, or not? Because <laughs> I know you'll have a different view. But um, obviously, there we heard Andrew Metcalf recently saying that already some of those uh, Middle Eastern markets are, are looking to new markets. Well, well, Australian. Uh, first of all, I should say that that this is a commitment that the Labor Party took to the last election. Uh, we, we are a government that does what it says it was going to do, uh, and th- but the government will work carefully uh, with the sector, particularly in Western Australia, uh, to effect the best uh, transition and other arrangements to ensure uh, that, um, that their interests are taken into account too. Uh, but it is true that, um, that live exports have continued to decline uh, over time. I have to say that the... The government's ambitions in terms of the National Reconstruction Fund and rebuilding our meat processing sector 
and focusing on exports of uh, chilled and boxed meat overseas uh, is is the way of the future here. Uh, that is the opportunity. Uh, that that means that we continue to export uh, meat products overseas uh, in increasing volumes. Our focus on increased market access to economies, particularly in the context of the EU Free Trade Agreement, um, but also in lifting our industrial capability in meat processing because, again, that is where the good jobs are in country towns and we're determined to continue prosecuting that agenda. Senator Tim Ayres, the Assistant Minister for Trade and Manufacturing, speaking at this week's ABARES conference in Canberra. A major Australian pastoral company has reached a milestone in its mission to reduce carbon emissions. Consolidated Pastoral Company CEO Troy Setter says the agribusiness has just received its carbon and methane emissions baseline data. He spoke to Alice Marshall. Yeah, we've been um, in the carbon reduction space since about 2014 because it's a really good thing to do. And also there's some, um, some good value creation opportunities for us. We've just finished the first draft of our um, carbon emissions uh, and methane emissions baseline work. Um, there's still more work to do, but we're getting close to uh, having a really objective baseline so then we can work even harder at reducing our emissions. So that's your emissions across all of your country in Australia and Indonesia as well, or just Australia-based? No, definitely Australia and Indonesia and everything we do, everything we bring onto the properties and everything we produce um, and, uh, and the way that we run them. So that baseline has data has just come this week is that right yeah we've just got it this week and uh there's some checks and and balances to do on there there's multiple ways to to calculate things and we're just reviewing through that now and then the uh the heavy lifting gets going on what are the ways to uh further reduce our emissions and you say you sort of started this whole process back in 2014 there's been a couple of methodology changes when it comes to measuring carbon emissions since 2014 have these methodology changes been a hindrance to you in your process? Yeah, they, they, they're not helpful, um, but if they improve accuracy, then we, we need to, to deal with that. I think one of the opportunities is for longer-dated um, methodologies with a clean energy regulator that are, that are really long-dated, you know, particularly for ones around livestock. So the beef cattle herd methodology, we'd like to see that effectively have an in-perpetuity type approach to it so that, that producers can invest in uh, infrastructure, technology and just and knowledge creation so that we can, on an ongoing basis, continue to reduce emissions and to, and to be rewarded for holding them down. Yeah, because you, were, you provide a fa- provided a fair bit of consultation with the most recent methodology. When's that due to run out? Um, I'm not exactly sure. It's due to run out in the next couple of years. Um, and we, we definitely want it extended, but we also want it to, to effectively last in perpetuity so that there is actually a methodology there for keeping uh, emissions uh, as low as possible. When it comes to the beef industry's aim for net zero by 2030, do these changing methodologies sort of make that challenge a bit harder? Um, I think there's potential there for it. It, it really just depends on, on how they're going to land, but if it improves accuracy and allows us to, uh, to get on with, with focusing objectively on emissions reduction. I don't think that's a bad thing. Consolidated Pastoral Company CEO Troy Setter talking to Alice Marshall about the company's mission to reduce carbon emissions. Still to come on the country, our pineapple recipes from our CWA experts, details of the Paranawina sale with Richard, 
And a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Wood. Thanks, Tony. At least five people have died using Tasmania's voluntary assisted dying laws since they began just over four months ago. 24 formal first requests were made and 11 progressed to the point where medical practitioners were authorised to access the substance for the individual. The Voluntary Assisted Dying Commission says not all go through with the approval for various reasons, but that is aware of at least five who have. The charity's watchdog is expected to review allegations made in Parliament that Hillsong Church misused the donations of its members. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie used parliamentary privilege to accuse the church of breaking financial laws in Australia and around the world. Fifteen students who fell ill after eating lollies on a North Queensland school bus have been discharged from hospital. The bus driver has been stood down and a police investigation is underway. And a county court judge is standing by his decision to ask a breastfeeding woman to leave a Melbourne courtroom yesterday. Judge Mark Gamble said it would be a distraction for the jury. Today he told the jury his decision was self-explanatory. For Bulletin at One. Time now to check the latest on the weather and Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. Hello Michael. G'day Tony. How's it going for a Friday? Is it uh, much rainfall about? Uh, there's only a few isolated falls about the west coast, uh, more scattered around the central west but um, the but the 24-hour figures to 9am, Lake Margaret had 28 millimetres. There was also scattered falls in that 20 to 28 millimetres um, range around the rest of the central west. Mount Bob's, though, in the south had 20 millimetres and Crater Valley scored 17. Since 9am, there's been some light falls about the west and Mount Reeds had the highest at 3 millimetres. Yes. Sun is trying to peek its way through the clouds. Yeah, that's right, and um, it, it's uh, it's just mostly partly cloudy through the state, except in the west and far south, where it's where it's overcast today with low cloud coming in over over the area. Okay, Michael, what can we expect uh, heading into uh, what is a long weekend for a, a few people out yeah. there? Yeah, well, t- tomorrow is going to be very similar to today, with just slightly less rain and slightly less windy in the afternoon, but. Um, it, it's uh, it's looking like another nice day for the most of the state, except the west, where it'll be similar to today, overcast and a bit few showers. The on Sunday, the story is during the day, a weak cold front will come up, um, bring southwesterlies over the state from change from the westerlies, and we'll sh- we'll get showers probably around late after, late morning, uh, early afternoon through Hobart, and then I'll travel up the east coast to be around the northeast in the in the late evening. Only a few millimetres in the motor, not not much there. The um, and then for Monday uh, after the cold front, a high quickly moves over the state, and we start getting showers through the north of the state, of uh, up to five millimetres, pretty drizzly sort of showers through the north on on Mondays. So, but um, pretty settled after that generally, um, and the next strong cold front's only only uh, late. Uh, mid to like Wednesday, Thursday next week. So, so fair way away and nice settled weather, weather till then, really. Oh, good. And uh, what sort of temperatures can we expect? Uh, well, today we're looking um, low, low 20s for um, the whole state. And tomorrow it's looking similar, so low 20s again. It's going to warm up towards the middle of next week where temperatures are going to get up around the 25 mark for most places on Wednesday and Thursday just before the cold front comes through. Okay. Now, warnings. Do we have any at this stage? We have a strong wind warning is the only warning out, and that's for today and tomorrow for the same places for the southeast and southwest coastal waters, Tasmanala, Low Rocky Point. 
Again, if people are wanting to head out to the waters over the weekend, coastal waters and swell, what's happening out there? The winds today, we've got a west-to-northwesterly wind, wind at 15 to 25 knots, uh, reaching uh, reaching 30 knots at, in, at times about the south. Tomorrow, uh, it's similar, west-to-northwesterly, 15 to 25, reaching 30 knots at times about the south again, and only variable about 10 to 15 knots about the central east. As far as swells, today in the western and the south, you've got a west-to-southwesterly around 3 metres, easing a little to 2.5 to 3 metres tomorrow. In the north, there's a westerly at one to one and a half metres offshore and then easing to about one metre offshore tomorrow. In the east, there's a south to southwesterly at one to one and a half metres for both days, um, tending southwesterly two and a half metres offshore in both days. And the wave riders, what are they doing? Sure, Cape Sorrell's at 2.8 metres at the moment and Marara Island's at 0.9 metres. Beauty, Michael, thank you for that. Thanks, Tony. All the best. Yeah, you too. Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you there on uh, what is uh, coming up uh, a long weekend for many people. Hope you enjoy whatever you are doing or whatever you are planning uh, this long weekend. A lot of people will be working probably right through the weekend. Anyway, enjoy that as well. Uh, One of our texters says the sea urchins in Frederick Henry Bay are a huge problem. There you go. The uh, story we just had. Uh, says that there's a huge demand for sea urchins on the uh, on the international export market and the domestic market as well. So the solution, obviously, is to eat them. Coming up, looking for staff, a big problem on farms, but uh, once you get them, once you get good staff trying to keep them, that's also a problem. We'll talk about that. This week on Landline, fighting spray drift in the cotton industry. Up until December, hadn't received many complaints about spray diff damage, but they're coming in thick and fast now. And the power of leaky weirs. We've been able to slow the water down, spread the water out, enable it to soak more effectively into the the floodplain itself. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Stay tuned for our pineapple recipes. They're coming up for you shortly. Also, Richard Bailey will uh, detail what happened at Powerani yesterday. Some 3,600 cattle went under the hammer. Big sale. Well, the challenge of hiring and retaining labour is front of mind for most farmers at the moment. So how do you stand out to find and keep the best workers? Michelle Sleeth, Regional Manager for Agri-Labor Australia, shared her top tips with Alice Marshall. And spoiler alert, it's not just about offering more money. Ways around that is being very upfront from the moment of what that job looks like. So what I mean by that is role clarity. So being very specific in the job that you're advertising you're advertising for. So if you're looking for a grader operator, for example, and 80% of his skills will be on the grader, but the other 20% skills he might be needed in the cattle yards or the sheep yards, whatever it may look like, make sure that's all very clear on his job or position description. And it's all about role attractiveness now. So people aren't going to move to another job within agriculture in any part of Australia unless um, there's a few key indicators that are covered off on that. And so 
it's not always necessarily money um, or people always think, oh, I'll move there because I'll get paid more. It's not that. That's actually number four on the list now. It's more about lifestyle and job flexibility, accommodation and other issues. So if you're looking to, let's um, say, get a farm manager at Walgett, New South Wales, um, for example... Um, you might offer quite a good money package but then you also might offer accommodation and then I've had other clients think outside the square where it's not just money orientated they might offer um, a sheep or a beast once a week to be killed for that family or a free tank of fuel for the wife of the husband to go to town once a week to do groceries or I've had other clients even offer to pay boarding school fees on particular places um, to help educate those children and to to get people out on farm in these rural remote areas. Our biggest headache at the moment is accommodation with supplying staff. Um, in regional Australia, there's a massive shortage in accommodation. So y- you need to look at or start looking at doing um, and getting extra accommodation to, to be able to supply people on farm the necessary life skills that they need to be able to live there. And as you touched on, that accommodation is such a key part, but it's not just having an old set of quarters out the back. It's about taking those quarters and potentially looking at doing them up and then also selling them and whether you're putting it on social media. Like, How are you advertising your job? So most of the advertising now is, is social media bound. I mean, you know, we used to advertise in the Queensland country life and the land and, and places like that, but now everything's done on social media. So there's many different platforms that you can use, but you need to promote your business. Young people of today or people looking for jobs are so, um, I guess, digitally aware. So it's about building a brand on what you're trying to deliver. So your brand is your farm or your workplace. So build that brand, you know, take some great photos of the accommodation, take some photos of the wheat crops, take some photos of what you can do locally around the the district to promote that, not just what you can do on farm, but also what you can do in and around that district to help promote and get the right person to that job. And then when it comes to when you've secured the right person, how do you go about keeping them? Like how vital is that first even a few days or a week to um, securing that person for the long term? It all starts with the onboarding process and that position description, which I mentioned before. Be very clear on the job that you advertise for and that's what you've got that person for. So I, I hear more often than not that, you know, I played, applied for a tractor role position, but I'm only in the tractor 20% of the time. The other 80% I'm doing sheep or cattle work, which I hate doing. So be very specific and upfront what that role looks like, but be organised on day one with your onboarding process. You know, make sure you have the new work shirt ready for them. The, the laptop, the phone, or the house ready, whatever it is that you've offered them in that package, make sure you're ready on day one because there's nothing more disconcerting for someone that when you're starting with a new business that on day one you turn up, there's no work shirts, you arrive late to the interview or the meeting spot that you've chosen and nothing's ready. So that for then you're not even feeling part of the team because the culture doesn't feel like it's right from day one. And you made an interesting point from what you're seeing around your local community around Gundawindi is that, yeah, people are leaving jobs but they're coming back at a higher rate than in previous times that you've seen. What do you think that's about? Definitely seeing, um, don't write that person off. If, I mean, different if they leave on bad circumstances, but if someone leaves your business and it's been on a quite a good 
level, don't write that person off from the fact that I have seen and I'm seeing more of it that they're coming back to those positions because I think sometimes you think the grass is green on the other side of the fence so they may have left for you know family reasons or monetary reasons or lifestyle reasons and that new job hasn't suited them or hasn't turned out to what they thought it was going to be because again the you know the role description wasn't clear or whatever it may look like so they've come back to their previous employer and I'm seeing a lot more of that now so you know, don't write a person off if they've left your business. Try to get them to leave and do an exit interview with them. That's really important is why are you leaving? You know, is it because of money? Because then you can reflect and get those ideas and, and put it into the next role you're going to try and fill. So get a, a, as much information off them as you can so you can build on the next person and, and build on that role. Regional Manager with Agri-Labor Australia, Michelle Sleeth, with some tips on keeping staff on farm once you manage to find good workers talking there to Alice Marshall. Well, you've been waiting for this. For the last 100 years, country women's associations have been the largest regional and rural advocacy groups in Australia. Can great scone and cake makers. At Beerware in Queensland, branch members are doing their bit to promote fresh pineapples after a horror season for growers who had a glut of small fruit. They're inviting entries into a cooking competition and as Jennifer Nichols discovered, they've already been getting creative in the kitchen. I'm Sharon Walters and I have made a pineapple sunshine cake. I've got pureed pineapple which has been spooned out. Oh, that was good. And then round balls of cake as well. Yep. And the pineapple top for decoration. Hello, I'm Del Davis. I've been a member of CWA for 63 years and this is the glasshouse slice. It's got a base, then we put pineapple jam on top and then coconut. It's very tasty. (laughs) Thank you, Del Davis. Now, who made the pineapple fritters? Do you like... Oh, sorry, Del. Would you like to come over and introduce yourself? Sherry. I'm a new member of the CWA and I made the pineapple fritters and cheese, ham and pineapple fritters. Um, They're a savoury dish made with your pineapple, cinnamon sugar and coconut in the batter and fried up. And you can make them easily at home. They look delicious. They are. (laughs) And who's made the pineapple chutneys? I did. Hello, my name's Katrina Odgers. I thought it'd be nice to make four or five different types of pineapple chutney and then maybe at the markets we actually have everyone try them and decide which one we're actually going to make as one of our main favourites lines. There's a pineapple and chilli one, we've got a pineapple and mustard and then we've got one that's a straight pineapple and then one that's got pineapple with raisins and currants in it. So there's three completely different recipes. Just basically cut them up and cook them and bottle them and we're about to try them with scones and the scones are good too they're pineapple scones you've made yes yes i don't think i've had a pineapple scone no they're different the flavor's not as good as it should be oh you can't say say that katrina oh delete that bit (laughs) no i find it changes the texture of the scones so those ones are pineapple these ones are just plain scones that we're having with. So you've got beautiful scones here that you've made to go with it? Yes, and they're still warm. Oh, 
So between the cold chutneys and our beautiful pineapple jam, we're all sneaking them at the moment, and they're just <laughs> divine with the beautiful pineapple jam and then a big lump of cream with it. Debbie Ives, you are the branch president of the Beerwah QCWA. Now, you've done this gorgeous pineapple upside down cake. Tell me about it. Well, it's a recipe that my mum shared from the UK, actually, so it's all come all the way from England. And yes, use fresh pineapples on top and it turned out quite good. And so this is the theme that you're trying to carry throughout is that you're actually using fresh pineapples to help the farmers. Absolutely. And yes, every recipe that we've made today, we've used fresh pineapple. I think that possibly we're towards the end of the glut. So buy up now, make your pineapples, you know, buy pineapples, use them, freeze them. So what's the competition involved? So as part of our community market day, we're encouraging people to enter their fresh pineapple cakes, preserves, jams. What was the concept behind this whole pineapple cooking competition? Well, the CWA is renowned for cooking competitions and also our branch takes pride in you know, supporting the local community and responding to local community needs. So it, what better way to support the local farmers and to promote CWA bakers, but to include the whole community. Yeah. And tell me about the CWA here. What's the history? Well, the branch has been going for 75 years. Started in 1947. Yes, starting in 1947. So the building's been standing here since 1948. We take advantage of the prime location in town. Um, so we, yes, hold lots of community days, community markets, workshops, and our doors are always open. And for people who've never thought of joining, what would you say to them? Uh, come and have some fun. Like I think predominantly we're here for friendship and fun and learning these skills. Just when you think you know everything, there's always more to learn. Yeah. So I'm Diane Tonkin-Taylor. I'm a member of the branch, but I'm also a country kitchens facilitator, which involves healthy eating. But I must confess I've never made a pineapple upside down cake before. There's actually a sauce to go with it, so you can have it as a dessert. We can cut some of it, yes. And you were asking before, the trick, when it comes out of the oven, you have to leave it in the pan itself. It was in a springform pan for 20 minutes. So basically you allowed it to go completely cool before you took it out of the pan. So I just need a plate, I think. OK, give it a go. OK. What do you think? Mm. I'm biased. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're making me hungry. That's Diane Tonkin-Taylor enjoying success after baking her first pineapple upside-down cake to promote buying fresh pineapples. And that report from Jennifer Nichols. Don't you love the person in the background with all, all the information about the history of the uh, the CWA in Biwa? Fantastic. In a moment, Richard Bailey will have all the details of the latest wiener sale at Powerena. Mornings with Leon Compton. Next week on Mornings, listen in or come say g'day as we broadcast to you from the Claremont Men's Shed in Hobart's northern suburbs. We'll focus on the power of community connection in places like the Men's Shed and we'll talk about how the cost of living is starting to bite. And of course, we'll talk to you. Come say g'day or listen in from 8.30 Tuesday next week at the Claremont Men's Shed. Leon Compton, ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
As we always do on a Friday afternoon, time to take you out to the livestock markets and say good day to Richard Bailey. Afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Tony. How are you going? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. How was it at uh, Power Annie yesterday? A lot less windy or was it uh, a bit cool? Yeah, a, lot, a lot less windy. Um, magnificent lineup of cattle, uh, 3,600, just over 3,600 wieners. Um, you go a long way to find a better lineup of cattle, I reckon, and we'll see this over the next three weeks of wiener sales. Um, it, it really does uh, show off our, the breeding of our of our herd down here. It's uh, magnificent. There were uh, two or three mainland auctioneers and agents here t- yesterday, and they were just saying that you know it stacks up with any of the, the big sales over there. Um, market was sort of a bit higgledy-piggledy. The, the wiener steers, the tops of the wiener steers sold pretty well and probably similar to a fortnight ago or fractionally dearer in places. Um, but when we got into those middle range ones, anywhere from sort of 240 to 280 or 90 kilos, uh, it took a bit of a, a slide and was sort of anywhere from 150 to $200 cheaper. So that was a bit disappointing. Heifers were, the better heifers were probably a little bit dearer than a fortnight ago, but then we got into the lighter heifers and they were $100, cheaper. You could, you know, like last year, if you put a bit of a comparison, I know it's it, last year was a, it was a crazy year, but I can remember last year going down that second row in the shed with 300 kilo cattle making $2,100, you know, $7 a kilo. Well, those same cattle this year would make fourteen to $1,600. So there's a pretty fair haircut there. Yeah. Um, everyone was expecting it. I think I think they were hoping that the reaction wouldn't be quite as strong as this. But anyway, just to give you a bit of an idea, um, the heaviest steer wieners, 1,400 to 1,820, to average 4.40 cents a kilo. Uh, next run down, uh, 1,340 to 1,660, to average 4.60. And then two, the, the, the steers that were 200 to 280 kilos, they made 7.20 to 13.20, or 3.90 cents a kilo. And the lighter ones, anywhere from 680 to 820 to average 400 cents. Over in the heifers, the best of the heifers, 1120 to 1560 to average 380 cents. Next run down, 920 to 1380 to average 360. And then the next run down, 560 to 1260 to average 330 cents. And then very light, 530 to $680 a head to average 310 cents. Um, there were about 170 or 80 heifers uh, went into state. That was all. Um, so that's good news for the processing sector. But um, I would have thought that some of these these lighter heifers and steers, um, they wouldn't want to get any cheaper, I think. for I reckon you're, you're playing with uh, cost of production pretty well there. Uh, just a few yearling steers made 1740 to 1960 and heifers 1260 to 1740. Next week, we're back there. Elders have their first sale. Uh, there'll be over 3,000 wieners there. Um, they mainly feature their Angus uh, wieners on that day. Um, be another really good day. Top, top lined ups of uh, cattle. Uh, so that'll be good. Yeah. Bull sales over the next two or three weeks. Um, keep an eye out if you're looking for bulls. I'm sure everyone is, but uh, keep an eye out for those sales. Gee, it's all happening, uh, isn't it? I mean, you <laughs> plenty of things to buy. Oh, yes, yes, and and good quality. You know, you can step in some really good lines of wieners at these sales. Uh, well, very well-bred cattle and um, great opportunity. It lines up um, uh, one of the nutrient 
agent auctioneers from the mainland were saying yesterday that this sale probably is as strong, if not a little bit stronger, than the mountain sales over the last two or three weeks in northeast Victoria, and they sort of are the are the pinnacle of their sales at this time of the year. So, you know, it's not as though we've been knocked around um, unnecessarily. It's just the whole job's come back. Um, and, you know, in the prime sales during the week, particularly earlier in the week at Wagga uh, and Pakenham and Wartlake, you know, there were some particularly plainer quality yearlings that were anywhere up to sort of 30 to 50 cents a kilo cheaper. So um, cow markets held up okay, but the rest of the cattle market has just come back, um, well, it's continuing to come back at the moment. It'll have to find a little flaw here pretty soon, I reckon. The other thing, Tony, that probably is slipped under the radar slightly and it is only early days but they're certainly talking about it getting dry particularly in northern victoria southern new south wales and that will affect our job a bit as well because you know if it gets dry obviously restockers start to pull their heads in as far as both lambs and and cattle go and um, that's something else that we'll monitor as we go because here we've been pretty fortunate talking to people yesterday i mean there's a lot of lot of tasmania that had anywhere from sort of 50 to 60 mils of rain over the last couple of weeks and even um, talking to guys down at sort of ooze and down further down south there they've had good rains there are parts of the midlands that weren't quite not quite as lucky but um, generally speaking pretty good start yeah all right lamb and sheep uh, lamb market has come back this week um, probably expectedly um, the better types of lambs have sort of come back um, a lot of these lambs have been quoted in that 700 to 750 cents a kilo range which comes off that sort of 780 to 820 that we were talking about last week and the week before and the, the months before um, but the the other thing is that if the lambs aren't up to it, in other words, if they're still in the wool or are not well finished, they're very quickly down to 550, 600 cents a kilo. So uh, just notice that none, neither of the major supermarkets were in any of the lamb sales this week, lamb yards this week, and, and a couple of the bigger exporters were pretty selective in what they were doing. So that indicates that there's plenty of lambs going direct to the works. Um, as I said, we, we, be, we have been expecting this, and if it can stay around that 700 or there cents a kilo, that's sort of, um, you know, that would be a pretty good result, I reckon, given the numbers that are in front of us. Mutton market uh, late last week and early this week improved a bit, but by the time we got to Hamilton and Wagga yesterday, it went the other way. Um, plenty of mutton sort of quoted in that 280 to 300 cents a kilo yesterday at both uh, centres. Just don't know. Um, I think a lot of the bigger works are killing more lambs and not as much mutton. But uh, be nice if the, this mutton job improved a little bit for the people selling coal for aid sheep. All right, Richard. You have a great weekend. Good on you, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back with us next Wednesday on the Country Hour to check the next power renter sale, which happens on Tuesday. Public holiday for a lot of people on Monday, so have a happy and safe long weekend if you're having one of them, and uh, if you're not, if you're working, enjoy that as well if you can. Don't forget, uh, plenty of good reading on ABC Rural Online, including that story about the pest beetle being detected in the uh, port of Devonport. That's online at ABC Rural, and also our ABC Rural Facebook page. As we say, happy and safe weekend ahead of you. And we'll catch you after midday Monday.